Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back, everyone, to Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Dr. Abby Ross. I'm a vestibular physical therapist, joined as always by Dr. Danielle Tolman, also a vestibular physical therapist. And we are discussing one of my absolute favorite topics today, psychological impacts of vestibular dysfunction. So before we get into that, I want to first introduce our lovely guest, Dr. Emily Kostelnik. She has her PhD in clinical psychology. And one of the reasons we chose her to discuss this topic is because she uniquely has both the professional perspective and the patient perspective. So welcome, Dr. Kostelnik. Let's get started. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe both from the professional standpoint and patient standpoint, so our audience has an idea on how you got here? Sure, absolutely. Um, So as you said, I'm Emily Kostelnik. I'm a clinical health psychologist, and I'm also a vestibular warrior. Um, I'm the owner of Rooted Behavioral Education, which provides virtual courses to those with vestibular disorders. And I am about to launch a private practice called The Vestibular Psychologist. Um, So what does it mean to be a health psychologist? So I'll start with that first. I'll talk about the professional piece and then the personal piece. Um, So I have a master's in experimental psychology, which is basically like research. Um, and then a PhD in clinical psychology with advanced training in health psychology. And health psychology is the interplay between medical illness and mental health. Um, So things I've worked with in the past, like throughout my training, would be things like diabetes, heart disease, weight loss, smoking cessation. Um, But so how does this all relate to vestibular disorders, which is, of course, what we want to talk about today? And treating vestibular disorders requires a massive behavioral health component. Um, So when I say behavioral health, I mean things like mindset, balancing the nervous system, sleep hygiene, knowing how to use our social support networks. Um, And research really shows that people with vestibular disorders who are optimizing behavioral health have better outcomes. They have less anxiety and depression, and they have less dizziness too. So that's kind of the professional piece. And then as a patient, my vestibular journey started in 2017 when I was diagnosed with superior canal dehiscence syndrome. Um, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the time. So it was the year I graduated, um, or sorry, the year after I graduated from my PhD program. And I initially had mostly auditory symptoms. So I was hearing my voice very loudly in one ear. It kind of sounded like a a loudspeaker. My own voice made me dizzy. And so I would whisper a lot, which is seen a lot in in people who have SCDS. I had tremendous brain fog. I had pulsatile tinnitus, which is when you hear your heartbeat. Um, I had something called Tulio's phenomenon, which is when loud noises cause you to experience vertigo. So kind of like a real life um, example of that, I couldn't eat out in a restaurant at all because the background noise sounded extremely distorted and then caused me vertigo. So it, it almost sounded like like pots and pans being smashed together. Um, and so throughout that process and having to leave my fellowship, like this thing I had worked for for like 10 years, I was totally devastated. Um, I experienced a lot of anxiety and depression myself because I had to leave my fellowship and have surgery. Um, And my first surgery, I had a middle fossa craniotomy, 
ended up being unsuccessful. So it, it didn't successfully plug the hole that was causing all of these issues. I and think, I, I believe it was for just a second. Yeah. I just want it for our listeners um, yeah, to sure. explain superior canal dehiscence. Sure, sure. We do have a good mix of clinicians and patients. But for those of you listening, if you're um, saying, oh, that sounds very similar to what I'm experiencing, uh, superior canal dehiscence is when you are missing um, part of the bone that surrounds the vestibular apparatus over the anterior or superior canal of the vestibular apparatus. So basically that leaves you vulnerable to different sounds and pressures that typically go in through these two small openings near where your hearing bones are. They actually travel through the canals of your vestibular apparatus, which can trigger an onset of inappropriate stimuli in that canal to make you think that you're moving when you're not. So um, one of the surgeries I think that you uh, had alluded to is sometimes they do a craniotomy, they go in and they patch that area with um, like a plug or a, uh, a bone graft. So it sounds like that was unsuccessful the first time. It was unsuccessful the first time. Oh. Um, and yeah, just to touch on what what you were saying about superior canal dehiscence syndrome is that people, it's very unique and it's it's one of the rarer disorders. So I have people like messaging me all the time, like, do I have this? Maybe I have this. Um, the likelihood is probably not just because it is very rare. However, I don't want to never say never, right? Because I'm one of the rare ones. Um, but it, it is this kind of strange combination of auditory and, and or vestibular symptoms. Um, and I think I've read things even that before this was discovered, I believe it was around like 2000, that people were sent to psychiatrists and said that they had psychotic disorders. Um, well, think about how crazy it is to right. explain your <laughs> symptoms. And when I am kind of screening patients in a, a history and I'm asking them, I'm like, this might sound like a weird question, but can you hear your own voice in your head? Can you hear your food digesting? Can you hear your eyeballs moving against your eyelids? And they look at me like, What? Uh, but yeah, there it's it's a very strange phenomenon that is hard to explain. And one of the unique aspects of this vestibular or uh, auditory dysfunction is that there is imaging that can diagnose it. So it's one of the few things out there that we can actually get imaging done for that will give you a diagnosis uh, right away. Um, but yes, it's it's a very strange thing that can sound odd to when you try to explain <laughs> your symptoms, like many other vestibular or auditory dysfunctions. Right. Right. Um, so yes, thank you for pausing. So pause me at any point if I just, I'm going on too much, but so yes, I had an unsuccessful middle fossa craniotomy, um, which is basically like the superior canal just wasn't plugged enough. So after I had the surgery, I went back and had an MRI done and they can use a very specific MRI protocol to actually look at the canal and try to estimate if the angle of um, the plugging is consistent with the size of the, of the um, dehiscence that they estimated, if that makes sense. So when they went back to look at my MRI, they're like, it looks like maybe we basically didn't plug enough. And it's, it's, I mean, it's really, the surgery is really an art because like, I think even the top surgeons have maybe done like hundreds of these. We're not talking about thousands and thousands. And so they don't want to overplug it because our, the apparatus that you're talking about is extremely small and extremely sensitive. Um, so anyway, so yes, I had an unsuccessful craniotomy. 
Um, and so about a year later, I went back to a different surgeon and I had a successful surgery via the transmastoid approach, which is a, a bit of a different approach. Instead of going in through like the top here, they go in through the mastoid bone, which is back here. Um, it's a bit less invasive, but they actually have to drill into the canals on either side to plug it like this. So that's sort of like my surgical history <laughs> with that. Um, and looking back kind of with what I know now, I believe I had some level of triple PD kind of between the surgeries. Um, but then kind of fast forward to postpartum, I developed severe chronic vestibular migraine and triple PD. So I've been kind of like on this really long vestibular journey. Um, one thing I forgot to mention too, some people develop BPPV after the surgery and I had that too. So I've kind of experienced all these different vestibular disorders and I've learned how to differentiate them pretty well. Um, and so then with my professional background, I'm like figured out, I feel like I have a good handle on my own illnesses at this point that I really am now able to help other people. Yeah, you are a perfect example of one of the phenomena we've been talking about on our uh, social media platforms in that you can have more than one diagnosis at the same time, right? Yes. You can have multiple impacting symptoms and therefore it's very important to decipher between the diagnoses and make sure you're getting the appropriate intervention because something mm -hmm. like vestibular migraine is treated very differently than something like BPPV. Mm -hmm. I did have one follow-up question in your history oh. there. Thank you for sharing that. Why, if I don't know much about the surgical uh, interventions for dehiscence, but why wouldn't they do the mastoid first if that was typically, it sounded like the better option? So from from my, I think it's twofold, and this is just from my understanding of it. Number one, with the middle fossa craniotomy, they can actually visualize the dehiscence. So when they, I believe they made, I think it was like two by three. I can't remember if it was centimeters or inches, but anyway, they made a big hole right here and they actually retract the temporal lobe. So they stick something in there and kind of push your brain back and they can actually see the dehiscence. So that's preferable because then they actually know what they're plugging. Um, they don't always do that depending on the location. I, I've even heard of people having posterior canal dehiscence. So if, if they weren't able to visualize it, they probably wouldn't choose that method. So that's number one. Number two is that with the transmastoid approach, they're blindly drilling into your canals or your canal um, and they, they can take out other canals in the process. So there can be kind of collateral damage. And then I guess there's actually three things. The third thing is um, people are more likely to have residual auditory symptoms if they have it via the transmastoid approach than the middle fossa craniotomy because it doesn't, because with the transmastoid approach, they can only replug it. Whereas with the middle fossa craniotomy, they can plug it and resurface it. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about the second surgeon that I saw. I don't know that every sur surgeon uses that surgical approach. Um, but with the transmastoid approach, like if it if it's really, really quiet, I do still have some auditory symptoms. And I think that's because I ended up with the transmastoid approach, but it's not, it doesn't impact my functioning in any way, if that makes sense. 
This sounds like a uh, another good episode to have a surgeon on to ask me questions because <laughs> I want to know if we're plugging the canals, is there a chance of shutting down the canal? Because they do canal pluggings for patients that have intractable beep and BV that they want to shut down the canal. I got lots of questions. I think, Abby, we have to start uh, digging around for a good surgeon to bring on and talk to about this. So that's that's an awesome, an yeah, awesome future the, episode, I think. The, the, I, I can answer. I think my surgeon told me this. I think it's that they, when they plug it, it shuts down 30 to 50% of that canal function. But the problem is if you resurface alone, the data isn't so good on that because it's just like a wet area. And so if they try to just put something on top, the chance of it moving around is pretty high. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's patient specific, it's physician specific. We'll have mm -hmm. to touch base with maybe the provider that you used that you had good results with, and maybe maybe that's who we'll have on the show. Now let's get uh, into the topic today, psychological impacts. I assume, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume you're choosing this patient population professionally because of your own experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think kind of it's almost like the stars aligned really when it, it comes to dedicating my, dedicating my career to this because all of my advanced clinical training was in health psychology. And again, that's the interplay of medical illness and mental health. And it's kind of like the exact specialty that you would need to work with this population. And then I've developed this very unique experience as a patient. Um, and I'm kind of for better or worse, the type of patient who like wants to know every single thing. So like I was researching like the physiology and the academic literature um, and trying to navigate the medical system, which is really hard and like find like the needle in the haystack doctor who's going to be able to diagnose you. And I've been through misdiagnosis and been told it's anxiety and had to learn to advocate for myself and be assertive in these environments, which is very difficult, especially when you're experiencing debilitating symptoms um, and then also manage your life at the same time. So what it means to be a student or working or have a family or your relationships. So like there's so many things that go into this. Um, and I've just kind of landed in this spot where I just have the perfect professional training and patient experience that it just the puzzle just fits together really nicely. It makes you very unique to um, work with the patient population because feeling connected, I think, is a huge part of this. Um, you know, uh, Abby has experienced beep and BV and I've experienced calorics, but that has nothing that's not very extremely similar to all these layers of diagnoses that a lot of our patients go through, mm -hmm. especially like what you've gone through. And, um, you know, just sitting and talking with patients in our office and going through history and telling them, oh, this is something that I've heard before. We've treated this before. We've worked with other mm -hmm. patients. You know, I usually have a box of tissues already because it is not uncommon for patients to just start crying because they finally feel like I'm not crazy. I'm being heard. I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And that's just a very, very small aspect of what we see. Um, right. So maybe could you talk about some of the specific psychological impacts of vestibular dysfunction on yeah. people? Sure. Um, so we know that people with vestibular disorders are three times more likely as the general population to have anxiety, depression, panic disorder. Um, and when I say three times more likely than the general population, I mean than people without vestibular disorders. The numbers I've seen hover around, I would say, like 45 to 60 percent. So 45 to 60% of people with vestibular disorders are experiencing anxiety, depression, panic, et cetera. Um, those are the numbers I've seen in the literature. In my personal experience, it seems like it's maybe higher than that. 
Um, so there's a paper I'm thinking of specifically. If we break that down by diagnosis, they found that that the threefold um, increase to be true for diagnoses like vestibular migraine, triple PD, and Meniere's. But it interestingly, it wasn't true for things like vestibular neuritis and BPPD. Um, and I think that that logically kind of makes sense. I think a lot of the people in this community we talk to with vestibular migraine, triple PD, Meniere's are reporting significant dizziness maybe all the time. And that has a huge impact on functioning and it really taxes our ability to cope with that. Whereas something like vestibular neuritis is an acute experience. Not to say that people with vestibular neuritis don't have ongoing issues because that can happen, obviously. Um, and then BPPV might just be a one-time thing. Um, and again, not to invalidate, like I've seen many people with anticipatory anxiety about it happening again. But I think it's kind of interesting that maybe that's different depending on what the diagnosis is. Well, I think those more um, chronic diagnoses where you experience mm -hmm. symptoms all the time for longer periods of time definitely wear the way on you uh, more potentially mm -hmm. than having an episode of um, acute vestibular neuritis where you feel miserable for the first couple of days, but you do see that automatic compensation and gradual improvement mm -hmm. slowly over time as you resume your normal activities. You know, sometimes patients need vestibular therapy to kind of kickstart their system and get it, you know, back to uh, feeling better. But other times you just, you know, people, people can go on throughout their, you know, daily lives and they eventually resume that normalcy again. Whereas something like uh, Meniere's or migraine or triple PD, you have these fluctuations in symptoms where you have good days and bad days and they feel like mm -hmm. they never end. And I feel like that really kind of uh, contributes to that feeling of hopelessness. And is this going to be the rest of my life? And how can I do the things I want to do? I can't plan for anything. It's tough. It's very tough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about why the anxiety and depression and panic are so high um, in people with vestibular disorders. And it's really important to understand this piece because we want to try to mitigate, obviously, the anxiety, depression, panic, but also the dizziness. And those things end up kind of becoming very interconnected. And I'll talk about why. Um, so anxiety is a pretty normal reaction to feeling dizzy, um, especially when we're, it's coming out of the blue, like in attacks, like in BPPV or a Meniere's attack or a vestibular migraine. Um, and I think what happens is that we start to feel unsafe in our bodies. So we're developing this mistrust in our bodies. Um, we can't count on our bodies to function how we need them to. When we lose confidence in our body's ability to cope with our everyday life, it's a adaptive that we might respond in this way, right? Um, but the problem is when we're experiencing symptoms all the time, then our body is in this fight or flight all the time. Um, and the real kicker here is that this nervous system activation that I just mentioned, this fight or flight response occurs or is a major part of anxiety and depression, but also vestibular symptoms. And so that is what the dizzy, anxious, dizzy cycle is. Um, and I know that this is kind of a term that's thrown around in the community. So the dizziness itself is activating the sympathetic nervous system. It sets in motion this anxiety and mistrust in our bodies, and we're perceiving danger, which makes us feel more dizzy and more anxious. And it just becomes this vicious cycle. And it can be hard to break. And I actually get asked a lot, like, how do I even know if it's anxiety or if it's a vis like my vestibular symptoms? Um, because especially with something like panic disorders, um, panic attacks, these types of symptoms, feeling faint, lightheaded, dizzy, et cetera, 
it's part of the diagnostic criteria, you know, it's like really common. So yeah. that's, that's a difficult one to answer. I don't know if you all have received that question or a lot, or if you have a way that you typically respond to it. Yeah. I think because the two can stir up the other, you know, make the other worse, it's, it's common that that is people wonder, well, is it my anxiety that's causing this? Or am I actually getting vestibular symptoms and my anxiety is kicking in and then my vestibular symptoms are getting worse? Mm -hmm. um, one thing I like to explain to patients is that it is very normal to experience the psychological symptoms, to experience that increased stress response. And mm -hmm. I often, I even say to patients, you know, those, you have every once in a while, I mean, it's more rare, but once in a while you'll have the really laid back patient and they're like, you know, just cool as a cucumber. And I'll say to them, you know, it's normal to have an anxious response. In fact, the people I worry about are the people that have no response to their world turning around and around or having such imbalance. So it is a hard question to answer, but one way I like to answer it is to say, you know, it's like who came first, the chicken or the egg? Let's just make sure we're appropriately, appropriately addressing both. And then we don't necessarily have to pinpoint, okay, it's because you're anxious that you're getting dizzy or it's because you're dizzy that you're getting anxious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also want to touch on um, anxiety is a huge one. Depression you had mentioned earlier is another big one. There are also some other symptoms that I think are less spoken about, things like social isolation. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes people will say they just feel like they have lost their sense of self. Can you touch a little bit about or touch a little bit on those types of reports, too? Sure, sure. Um, and I think this is why behavioral health is so important, um, because it's not just anxiety and depression. It's the, the social piece too and kind of managing everything about our lives. And I think that one thing that's unique about vestibular disorders is that our worlds become smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, so people stop driving. I personally did not drive for multiple year, years. So they're like your sense of independence which is a major, can be a major part of someone's identity, um, social relationships. Maybe people in your life are supportive. Maybe they're not, you know, we go to doctors that are misdiagnosing us with anxiety or telling us that it's in our head. What happens when our spouse is saying the same thing to us? Um, some people are afraid to leave their house. You know, they might wonder like, am I going to get stuck somewhere and have an attack and I'm not going to be able to get out of it? Um, so the, the social piece, the, the isolation is huge. Um, I think it's kind of a combination of things when we're maybe staying home, not doing the things we used to do anymore. We lose sense of self. We, may, we might not have the same career anymore. A lot of people lose their employment or they have to drop out of school. Their social circle might change because maybe the things that they used to do, like go out, I don't know, to bars or concerts or things that are no longer tolerable to them. And so people feel like, what do I have left? On top of that, people are saying, you need to change the food that you eat and you need to do all of these other things. So it's like, what am I grasping at? All these things that I used to love, all these things that I used to do you know, for fun or for social interaction. I don't have them anymore. And so I think that that is a major piece. And then on top of that, when we're staying home, we're not driving, we're not leaving the house, whatever, 
our vestibular systems themselves are decompensating. And so then we just get more dizziness problems and enter the same cycle again. Um, so I'm really, really glad you brought that up. And I think it's important to, to dig out of that requires truly baby steps. It's like putting one foot in front of the other or making very small, small goals. Um, I think probably later we'll talk about some specific things that people can do, but yes, it's, I kind of think of it as like your life is like a sphere and it becomes kind of like this very small, like laser and people are like, I don't know how to increase my tolerance to these things anymore. Yeah, it's amazing to hear some of the things. Now, you know, every patient is a, is their own individual patient. If you've met one dizzy mm-hmm. patient, you've met one dizzy patient, and there's right. um, so you know, we definitely understand um, talking to our patients and hearing what they go through. That that is a huge piece of it. I mean, I had one woman who um, her daughter wouldn't let her hold her grandchild, mm. um, her new grandchild, because she thought that she was going to get dizzy and drop the baby. Um, you know, I had another woman that couldn't play her music anymore because she had a hard time reading, um, music on a, on a staff and being able to play the piano at the same time. And Mm -hmm. it's stuff like that, that really takes away from that quality of life and just really is heart wrenching for a lot of people, especially if that's been their entire life and been their happy point. I know if you try taking chocolate away from me, I wouldn't be a very (laughs) happy person either. Um, so, you know, changing your entire life and having everything turned upside down is devastating. And, Mm -hmm. Um, I think finding that new normal and figuring that out takes some help. It takes a lot of help, especially um, I think one thing that makes vestibular dysfunction so difficult is that is it's an invisible illness. Mm-hmm. Um, you had talked about your friends and your friend group, and a lot of people will say, "You look fine. What's the matter with you? Right. Like you're not over this by now? Like come on, like let's go out. Let's go to, to a, a restaurant. A restaurant could be ridiculously hard, or a street festival, or something. And it's just they you don't feel understood anymore. Um, I think that's is a huge, huge part to um, you know making vestibular dysfunction more visible, making it more aware is like, we have to help our patient population in that aspect as well. And spouses, I can't tell you how many times I encourage a spouse to come back to the evaluation room to watch me work with their wife or their husband, because as soon as I can get their eyes on a big screen with my infrared goggles and they can watch their loved one's (laughs) eyes roll around from beef and BV, they all of a sudden get very defensive. Like, what are you doing to them? What is going on? I go, oh, this happens every single time that, you know, they change position. Oh, so she's not lying. Oh, she does, you know, she does get dizzy when she has to empty the dishwasher or when she wants to lay down in bed. I'm like, really? And then all of a sudden they leave with a whole new perspective. But sometimes seeing is believing and it's just very difficult with this type of dysfunction in patient population. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what are some things that um, people can do and modify and change with their lives? Um, what are some tips? Because I know people listening to this probably want to walk away with some things that they can do at home. They need some guidance. And um, we're super excited to have you on to talk about some of that. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, like the most foundational thing is to calm down that nervous system response. Um, <clears throat> so, so many of us are in sympathetic or that fight or flight, just hyper arousal all the time to the point that people are experiencing panic attacks. So we really have to break that cycle. So it's things, it's things that honestly sound simple and people might say like that could really have an impact, like breathing exercises, massively impactful, um, progressive muscle relaxation, guided imagery, mindfulness, meditation, um, optimizing 
sleep. So using good sleep hygiene, something like biofeedback can be really helpful too. Um, I know that that's not available to, to everyone, but that's sort of like a more concrete way of doing relaxation exercises. So providers who do biofeedback will put up like different sensors on parts of your body, depending on what type of biofeedback you're doing. And it gives you f literal feedback. So like say there's a red light and a yellow light and a green light, and it tells you if you're in an optimum state of say relaxation, not, I don't want to get too technical with it. And so you can start to learn what type of breathing do I need to do? Or how do I need to posture myself to keep myself in the green? And then you can use those skills when you're not attached to the sensors to kind of go through life in a more relaxed or optimal state. Um, but the thing about the sympathetic activation, so we have to address that directly, like th with the things I just mentioned, but it's also about the narratives that we're telling ourselves. Um, it, it's our beliefs about our condition, our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about what this means for our future and our identity. So it's really addressing the thought piece. Um, and I really want to stress here that I know that like the way that our medical system is, is structured is pretty siloed, but all of this stuff is related. So we have research that our thoughts, our nervous system, our thoughts are impacting our nervous system. It impacts our hormones, like our stress hormone cortisol. This can impact our immune system. It can impact the inflammation in our body. So there's actually a whole field of this. Um, I don't know if I can even say it correctly. I think it's psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology. So if that just tells you like how much all of this stuff is related. So even addressing this nervous system over arousal, addressing these negative thoughts truly has an impact on your overall body, including the dizziness itself. It's not just like an in your head kind of thing, if that makes sense. Um, and then I think a word that's used a lot in this community too is neuroplasticity. Um, and it's that's just our brain kind of rewiring itself depending on our experiences. Um, and neuroplasticity is not kind of like its own intervention. It's just kind of the byproduct of engaging in these adaptive behaviors things like VRT or psychotherapy or nervous system regulation. Um, so I think hopefully that answers the question. If we want to talk about specific therapies, the ones that have the most research support for this population are CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. Um, so if you're, say, looking for a therapist, and we can talk a little bit more about that at the end, those are some good things to, to look for um, since that's what the data has showed really has been helpful for people, both for decreasing anxiety, depression, um, and living in service of the things that are important to us, cultivating identity, but then also the dizziness itself. Yeah, I think that was such a good overview on all the ways we can positively impact the psychological impacts that we experience, not only I mean, what you just said really pertains to every human being I've ever met, right? Not just patients with vestibular dysfunction. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically, so you had mentioned that there's some really simple techniques we can do, such as a breathing strategy. Can mm -hmm. you share one that you may have used in the past or currently use that you really find beneficial, something quick, easy that even we could implement right now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think one of the most basic ones is diaphragmatic breathing. Um, and that's, I, I don't want to say that it's simple because I've honestly had countless patients I've tried to teach and they have difficulty getting it. And I think that's just a testament to the fact that most 
people are not breathing optimally, which is pretty interesting. Um, but basically the kind of gist of it is to put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly and just initially just notice how you're breathing. So is your chest rising? Is your belly rising? So just kind of developing awareness first and then trying to breathe in a more intentional way where the hand on your belly is going in and out and the hand on your chest is staying flat. Um, And one thing I tell patients that they have trouble getting it is it can be easier if you lie flat and like put something on your belly and you can visualize maybe like a book or like a tissue box or something. You can kind of visualize it going up and down. Um, But I say it's simple and it is one of the more foundational breathing techniques, but for some people it is very difficult to get because you're moving your bodies, your body in ways that you're not used to. And we take something like 20,000 breaths a day. And so we've become very used to breathing in a certain way. And when you want it, when you kind of want to change that, it can be difficult. I know, um, you know, I started implementing some deep breathing techniques to help with my anxiety and some sleep issues that I was mm-hmm. having. And it wasn't until I was working with a patient in Maryland who gave me breathing techniques um, to utilize um, as like another example it was a, a four, five, six breathing. So inhaling for four seconds, holding your breath for five seconds and slowly breathing it out over six seconds. Mm-hmm. And it was doing that for like a repetition of 10 times. And it was immediate that I could feel my heart rate coming down and kind of things settling down. And I was utilizing that at night to help with sleeping and it would knock me out in no time. Um, That and another thing that I recommend to my patients are these um, uh, guided meditation apps. I'm somebody who I cannot shut my brain off. And I have a lot of, we see that a lot in our our vestibular patient population, especially those who are um, symptomatic and seeking help. Um, they tend to be the more type A, they can't kind of shut things down. Um, and I found that the guided meditation apps, like um, I use Insight Timer or Calm or Headspace, having somebody else telling me what to think about and picture and breathe um, helped me uh, actually do the exercise versus thinking, of, well, I should be doing this and I should be doing that. I can't believe I have this tomorrow. And, oh, I really, I'm really behind on this, that, and the other thing. I need to get to my documentation. Um, so listening to somebody else tell me to breathe and relax the small muscles around my eyes and feel the tightness in my jaw melt away was extremely helpful. And actually something I'll utilize with patients at the end of my sessions while we're doing maybe some manual work to their cervical spine, I'll put something on my little Bluetooth speaker in a nice dark room and we'll just listen and almost fall asleep. And it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever come across, sorry, when you're scrolling on Instagram, for example, have you ever come across the post where it's like, okay, unclench your jaw, relax your shoulders. And you, you look at yourself and feel yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, I was (laughs) clenching my jaw and my shoulders were hiked. Right. So yeah, these, these, they seem simple and, you know, perhaps, minuscule, but they can make a really big impact, not only for Mm -hmm. people with vestibular disorders, but anyone with a little bit of anxiety. And I think that's just about everyone these days. When we talk about, when we talk about anxiety and depression and these other psychological impacts, we're, we're noting why it's important, or we've talked about the importance of addressing them. Let's touch on the why of that. So why is it Mm -hmm. so important that we address the cycle logical impacts along with 
are symptoms? We've touched on this a little bit, but I want to flesh it out a, a bit more for our audience. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll get there. There was one thing I wanted to touch on really quickly. Um, with I know that, Danielle, you had mentioned the four, five, six breathing. There's actually some research that shows that longer exhales it is what engages that parasympathetic response. So that's kind of the like rest and digest sort of like the opposite of sympathetic. Um, and, and yes, about insight timer, huge fan. I'm doing a 14 day breath work challenge and I think I'm on like day four, five or six. And I truly have noticed a difference. Mm -hmm. I do it just at night for 15 minutes and truly throughout the day, I, I feel calmer. Um, and one of my favorite ones on there was the box breathing, which is like in for four, hold, mm -hmm. out for four, hold. I don't know if you are doing the same I, challenge. I love – well, I love doing the challenges because I'm a very task-oriented person and yeah. I like being held accountable. So I love that they have um, the challenges. I love that they have courses. I love that, um, especially for my skeptical patients who are like, I can't meditate. They have like mm -hmm. two-minute sessions and three-minute sessions and five-minute sessions. You can kind of work up and it tracks and logs and like praise you for having consecutive days in a row. Like the app is, you could tell, truly um, designed by people who were very intentional on helping people stay consistent with it. But I love it and it's free um, yeah. and it's amazing. I can share um, all like the different linked classes because I found like certain voices I do great with and certain voices I don't do great with. So like, mm -hmm. you know, finding the right people and you've got, you've got meditation stu uh, superstars on there like Tara Brock. Um, she's got a ton of, of stuff on Insight. So uh, we are not a paid ad. However, uh, anybody <laughs> from Insight, if you're listening, hit us up. We love to talk about how we can partner with you because we use, right. I use it all the time with my patients and I use it myself personally. So yes, yes. So yeah, so yes, okay. we're, we can talk now about kind of the importance of managing all these things. Um, so it, oh, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. No, please. Okay. Um, sure. So if we want to get back to just like the the evidence. Um, research is showing that people with vestibular disorders who are engaging in treatment like CBT or ACT are decreasing not only their anxiety or depressive symptoms, but also their dizziness. Um, and it really comes back to what I mentioned previously about how the vestibular system and anxiety and depression are really so tightly connected. We have to try to like intervene in all areas possible. And behavioral health is a huge one, but I think vestibular disorder treatment really requires a multidisciplinary approach. Um, but I think that I see behavioral health not only as treating the anxiety and depression, because just like you said, like some patients are, will come in cool as a cucumber and like that's not an area of intervention necessarily for them. Um, but it's focusing on things like sleep hygiene. It's focusing on things like how to commu communicate with family members um, on optimizing cognitive function. I know we didn't talk about that one today, but that's a really big one with this population too, like feeling brain fog and all of that type of stuff. Um, I think with the anxiety piece, I've seen that to be especially, especially important with triple PD. And we're seeing so many people with triple PD now. I think there was even a study that found that triple PD just on the continuum of some level of symptoms is actually quite common in the general population, which is pretty interesting. Um, but anyway, getting back to anxiety and triple PD, I'm not saying triple PD is anxiety. It's not. It's a sensory processing disorder. However, we know that a history of anxiety, our beliefs about our illness are 
can predispose us to triple PD. And so when I think about this cycle, triple PD comes to the top of my mind. Um, I think one other thing that I wanted to touch on in the importance here is something we haven't talked about, but research sort of is going in the direction of looking more at inflammation and inflammatory markers. And I think, I can't remember if it was like a month or two ago, there were headlines. I was like, depression is not caused by chemical imbalance. Like it's actually inflammation. And that's actually, that research is not new. That's been out there for a while, but research is sort of going in that direction as they find more and more evidence and obviously look for new treatments. But I think the kicker here is that, again, new research, there's only a handful of studies, but some researchers have found increased inflammatory markers for diagnoses like vestibular migraine, triple PD, Meniere's, I think BPPV was on that list, vestibular schwannoma was on that list. And so I think that is kind of like the way of the future. Um, I, I can't speak too much on it yet because like, we just don't know that much about it yet, but I think that that's going to be definitely something to look out for. I mean, I can speak to that anecdotally. Um, you know, when you think about yeah, even, I could speak. yeah, I yep. mean, even when you look at, um, spikes in BPPV recurrences, right, we see waves of people when they come in throughout the year of, BPPV recurrences or vestibular neuritis or any sort of vestibular hypofunction. We usually see fall time, like October, November. We see just mm. after the holidays, after everyone's been traveling and exposed to germs and not sleeping, you know, in their normal site, like sleep cycles. And um, they're finally home and settling down. And then we, again, we see a big spike in the spring. Um, so whether it's seasonal allergies, changes of weather, um, you know, mm -hmm. being just thrown off of our sleep schedules, you know, we had the time change at the beginning of November. And I don't think it's coincidental that year after year that I've been practicing and seeing patients that I'm seeing this. October, November, I am usually swamped in the clinic with a new onset of dizziness for patients. You know, same thing in the spring. And it, I don't think that it's coincidental. So I'll, we'll mm -hmm. be keeping our eyes out on that research and seeing that go through. But we see that a lot with inflammation and inflammatory type responses and um, patients that have similar diagnoses for um, autoimmune or um Yep. respond well to anti-inflammatory type approaches and treatment like anti-inflammatory diets. It's not uh, um, unusual to see somebody with vestibular migraine do well with an anti-inflammatory type diet. Um, mm -hmm. They overlap with a lot of similarities. So I think you're definitely onto something there. Yes. And anecdotally for me personally, focusing on inflammation has given me like profound results. Um, so something to look out for. I love that you have both this professional and patient experience to bring to our audience today. It's just so, it just takes it up one notch. I love it. Um, let's talk more about the professional side now. So when we think about where patients can go to, to find professionals in this realm, I mean, me, even as a clinician, I struggle to find vestibular psychologists or psychotherapists that can help address these symptoms. It's one thing to send your patient to a psychotherapist. It's a whole nother thing to send your patient to a psychotherapist who has knowledge about vestibular disorders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I, I mean, I can join with you with this. I get like messages all the time about like who in my state or who in my country can you refer me to? Um, because people like, well, 
messaged me from around the world and I tried to compile a referral list and it is truly like a handful of people. And then with like licensing laws, the way that they are and restrictions, like it's really hard to get people the care that they need. Um, so just in general, so if you were looking to work with someone like with similar training to me, probably not the personal patient experience piece, but if you look for a clinical psychologist with training in health psychology, um, specifically in chronic illness, that will kind of move you closer probably to where, what you're looking for. Um, many health psychologists are trained in biofeedback which I mentioned before, that's not the only type of professional that will do biofeedback. It's sort of kind of hit or miss. Like you might find a PT who does it or a nurse or a physician even. Um, and I, I, I think I sent you guys some links um, and one of them was for biofeedback to try to find providers. Um, so and in we'll, terms uh, we'll put these in the show notes and we'll flash them on the yeah. screen too. But go ahead. Call, uh, you can okay. call them out when, when you want. We'll throw them up there. Okay. Um, and then, so just other professionals who might help marriage and family therapists. So if you're struggling like with communication with your family or your spouse, like that type of thing could be helpful. Um, I've come across a few others in the field, like some social workers or professional counselors who are well-versed in this. So I think it kind of comes down to the individual person's training and experience, like what populations they've worked with, what settings they've worked with. And then there are the few of us who have personal experience with this, whether it's that we live with vestibular disorders ourselves, or like we have family members who do. Um, one that I don't see talked about very often um, is clinical neuropsychologists. So if you feel like you're really, really impacted by cognitive issues, they can do testing for that um, and kind of see where, how you're doing and measure progress over time and make recommendations for that. Um, so I think that kind of covers like the behavioral health gamut. I don't know if you have any other questions about that. I think that's a really good overview. And in fact, I never even thought about the spousal support and just, you know, mm -hmm. relations, relationship support. I never even thought about that piece. I think that's a really important thing to throw out there. The other mm -hmm. thing I would say is that when we talk even about patients finding the appropriate vestibular provider, whether it's a vestibular therapist or a physician for migraine or, or whatever it is, I always encourage patients before scheduling an appointment to call the office and see if you can get someone on the phone to almost interview them a little bit, you know, ask them what their experience is working mm -hmm. with patients similar to you with similar symptoms, tell them what your goals are, what things you need to be addressed or what you'd like to address and see how they respond because you can get a lot of information just from that brief five, 10 minute phone call with the provider or with someone from the provider's office to see if it's worth a shot. Mm -hmm. And one, one thing that Danielle had touched on in the, the beginning of just talking about your, your own clinical experience, um, I think that therapy is kind of an art and a science and having this experience this like vestibular knowledge and experience can be very important. Um, however, the relationship is still the most important part. And so you want to find a provider who you feel safe with, you feel like you can connect with them. And perhaps the lack of vestibular knowledge might, might make that difficult. And maybe that's the part that's the difficult piece. Um, but when I throw around words like CBT and ACT and these specific interventions, yes, they're important, but if we just come back to the basics, the, the therapeutic relationship is still the most important part.
I will say from if uh, any clinicians are listening, some of the ways I have found that I have better success with my patients, especially my more anxious, nervous, um, symptomatic patients, is spend a lot of time educating. Mm -hmm. If somebody knows what's going on inside their body and why they're being symptomatic and how what you're doing with them is going to help, especially uh, you educate them about beep and BV before you throw them back into uh, (laughs) testing and maneuvers, you will gain their trust for life. Um, and it's going to make your treatment that much more successful and easier. You're going to be more likely to get consistency out of your patient, which means they are going to get better faster. Um, it's really gauging your patient. If you have your nice laid back people that, you know, you can, you can epley them all day, you know, great. Um, but I would still take the amount of time to educate and connect with them as you would for the patient that's super anxious and come up with, um, strategies to help them feel better. You don't have to do every test in every treatment and everything in your evaluation the first day, break it down for them and kind of prolong it over a couple of days. Um, talk to them, give them strategies to make them feel more comfortable. Let them come in for their second visit um, medicated before you do any repositioning maneuvers and just spend the time talking to them about what to expect and what they're going to feel and what we can do to treat that if they are um, positive for PPV that day or you know, whatnot, um, but also have a referral for people in the area that you can get them to as far as a therapist is concerned or somewhere that they can get help because we want to refer them to somebody that can address these other symptoms that was not within our scope of practice and training. You know, this multidisciplinary <laughs> approach is something that we hammer home a lot to our listeners and to clinicians and mm-hmm. to patients and that it is likely going to be more than one person that you're working with to get your journey headed in the right direction. Um, so that's Mm -hmm. super, super duper important. And I love the resources that you sent us for where to look up um, other therapists or at least give patients this information. You know, finding somebody Mm -hmm. that has those qualities that you had mentioned earlier, um, even having the the, uh, reference for a neuropsychologist is huge. And I didn't even think about the biofeedback providers, but that is another essential um, uh, treatment that I think is helpful for patients. But take the time with this patient population because it is, I think, extremely, extremely important for getting people to feel better. The research is showing it. Patients are showing uh, much better improvement with this type of treatment approach. So absolutely mm-hmm. work with these, um, you know, these different strategies that we talked about today. And I have one personal question for you um, <laughs> uh, based on my personal experience with patients. This is actually something that I'm just curious about because I've been so back and forth on you talked about Treating patients is kind of a mix between a science and an art. Mm-hmm. When it comes to asking patients to log symptoms, okay, is there who what kind of marker should I be looking for? Because there are some patients where I like I know if I ask them to log symptoms, they will take it to the extreme, and it might almost be detrimental to their um, uh-huh. to their progress. So, like, do you have any quick tips for me of? who I can kind of narrow in on of who I should be asking to log symptoms and maybe who I should steer away from asking to keep a symptom log. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, And something that I've seen myself where instead of just thinking about like symptoms over the, the previous day, people are thinking about them throughout the entire day. And that is very, very counterproductive because where we put our attention is where like our brain is rewiring. So when we're putting our attention on the dizziness all the time, then our brain's saying, that's super important. Let's make that even, even worse. Um, so I think it's 
it's tough from a PT perspective. I think it's kind of gauging the personality type. If you're noticing more like perfectionism, um, like you mentioned that kind of type A, I would, I think it might be too difficult to screen based on that because, you know, you spend a limited amount of time with these people. Instead, I would set very specific parameters around it. So maybe you'd have like a handout and there's like, like, so what I would recommend or what I did as a patient myself, I would have a calendar with just the whole month. And I think over the previous day, zero to 10, like what was my dizziness level? And then what was different? So like, did I, was I, where was I in my cycle or how was my sleep or whatever? And so just have like a very small little spot where they put that. So they can't take copious amounts of notes. It's not necessary. Um, and set very specific parameters of at the end of the day, I want you to spend one minute doing this. And so just give them very specific instructions. Um, and maybe explain to them why it's not helpful to go above and beyond what you're asking. I love that. And that sounds very easy to do. And then my last follow-up question <laughs> is, what is your position about Facebook groups? Um, this is an groups. excellent question. Yes. I've gotten some hate about this for what I've posted on social media. Um, so I find social, find these Facebook groups to be helpful for two reasons initially finding physicians. Um, and some, some Facebook groups are really good about like having files where they have like referral lists and then maybe messaging like one or two other people who you think that you seem, you think you might identify with. One of my best friends to this day is from an SCDS Facebook group. What is not helpful is going in and reading and reading and looking for reassurance because you will never find reassurance. You will always find someone who's been in there for 20, 30 years and saying they've never gotten better. You will find someone who said they've had a um, negative reaction to medications or unsuccessful surgeries. And the things that you have to really remember about this is that there's a selection bias. So the people in these groups are not the people that are getting better because the people that are getting better are outliving their lives. The other thing that you have to remember about Facebook groups is that access to care is a massive issue. Um, and I, I wish it weren't the case, but if we're talking about someone who's living like in a rural area overseas, they're going to have a very different experience than someone who's living like in, I don't know, New York City or something, just in terms of like the type of care that's available. And, and then the third piece is people present themselves in some certain way online, but you don't know their background. So I, I remember specifically in, in this SCDS group, like reading kind of following people's stories because like the same people would kind of post and I would get very anxious. And then one day they'd say like, oh, well, I also have multiple sclerosis and bipolar disorder. And it's like, that is very important information. And you don't know that about anyone in these groups because everyone has a complex medical history, a complex mental health history, and all of those things interact to create that person's unique experience. And so to try to compare yourself of like, oh, well, that medication didn't work for them. So I shouldn't try it. Like maybe it was contraindicated for them because of some other medical condition that they have. So just kind of to, re to rewind, 
find, I find it helpful for resources like physicians or PTs or whatever. And then maybe to make like a few personal contacts of people that you might like message back and forth, but to just go in and read, I personally have left all the groups. Um, they're not triggering for me anymore because of just how far I've come in my recovery. But there was a period of years where if I went back into those groups, I would take multiple steps back. That's a great overview. And I appreciate that perspective. Um, I share the same thoughts and the same feeling. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. And I totally agree as well. Overall, Dr. Kostelnik, thank you so much for the insight you brought to our show today. Audience, we thank you so much for joining us once again. We'd love to hear from you. If you leave us a review, send us an email, something. We want to know who we're talking to out there. We will also be sure to write in the show notes where you can find Dr. Kostelnik. As she mentioned, as she mentioned at the beginning of this of the show, she is treating patients and will be treating patients. Maybe she can help you in the future. Thank you all. We'll see you next month. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.